Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Secretary of State Blinken's inability to answer a question on CNN's State of the Union about Elon Musk preventing Ukraine from attacking the Russian Black Sea Fleet to stop it from firing caliber missiles at Ukrainian civilian targets, saying, quote, I can't speak to a specific episode. Joining us to discuss why the Biden administration and the Pentagon seem to have no control over Musk, who appears to admire Putin and could be passing on Ukraine's most vital secrets to the Kremlin, is Zach Cooper, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He previously served in the Pentagon and White House under the George W. Bush administration, first as a special assistant to the principal deputy under Secretary of Defense for policy, and then as assistant to the deputy national security advisor for combating terrorism at the National Security Council. Then on this 50th anniversary of the coup against Chile's President Salvador Allende, which led to the torture, murder and disappearance of over 40,000 Chileans, we'll speak with Ariel Dorfman, a Chilean-American author born in Argentina whose award-winning books in many genres have been published in more than 50 languages and his plays performed in more than 100 countries. Among his works are the plays Death and the Maiden and Purgatorio, the novels Widow and Confidence, and the memoirs Heading South, Looking North and Feeding on Dreams. A prominent human rights activist, he worked as press and cultural advisor to Salvador Allende's chief of staff in the final months before the September 11, 1973 military coup, and later spent many years in exile. He's an American professor of literature at Duke University, and his latest book just out is The Suicide Museum, a novel. And he has an article at the New York Times, I Watched a Democracy Die, I Don't Want to Do It Again, and another at the New York Review of Books, defending Allende. Then finally, on this 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks on Wall Street, the Pentagon, and the attempt to destroy the U.S. Capitol, we'll speak about the Senate Homeland Security Committee's efforts to get an unredacted report on Saudi Arabia's role in the attack with Philip Sheenan, the best-selling author of The Commission, The Uncensored History of the 9-11 Investigation. A former reporter for The New York Times for more than 20 years, as a Washington correspondent for The New York Times, He covered the Pentagon, the Justice Department, and the State Department, and as a foreign correspondent, he reported for more than 60 countries and several war zones. His latest book is A Cruel and Shocking Act, The Secret History of the Kennedy Assassination. And joining us now is Zach Cooper, who's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He previously served in the Pentagon and the White House under the George W. Bush administration, first as special assistant to the principal deputy undersecretary of defense for policy, and then as assistant to the deputy national security advisor for combating terrorism at the National Security Council. Welcome to Background Briefing, Zach Cooper. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And stories that we're hearing largely coming from a new book, that's out tomorrow on Elon Musk. The New York Times, for example, got hold of a copy of Walter Isaacson's new book. And some of the revelations about the power and influence or the autonomy of, of, of Elon Musk over the Pentagon uh, is just beyond belief. And in fact, Secretary of State Blinken was on CNN uh, over the weekend asked by Jake Tapper, how come the US government can't control uh, Elon Musk, and he has literally the the fate of Ukraine in his hands. 
and he can decide, uh, in effect, who can, who can win the war. And he's obviously got close ties to Putin, uh, which raises some, some rather alarming questions. So as somebody that's been inside the Pentagon, can you explain to us why it is that the Pentagon doesn't seem to have control over this, I guess, defense contractor, Elon Musk? Well, I think one thing you've seen over the last couple of years is what you might call the democratization of uh, some of the space technology. It used to be that a small number of defense companies were really the ones that were way ahead in terms of launching satellites and operating those satellites. But now SpaceX is in a position where actually in, in many areas it's far ahead of its competitors. It can launch more cheaply and it's launching huge numbers of satellites, over 4,000 already uh, that SpaceX has done uh, of its own satellites. And that provides Elon Musk with a capability that no one else has globally. Um, and I think that's giving him a lot of leverage. He clearly sees himself as someone who is sort of a global citizen first, and he has tried both with SpaceX, but also with Tesla to argue that he he thinks these companies shouldn't come from a national standpoint, but more more from a global or a, a human standpoint, as he likes to say. And I think that's making it very difficult for the Pentagon and others to control what he does. I will just say, though, that I think Elon is going to find out pretty quickly that if he's entering into contracts with the U.S. Department of Defense, he's going to have to abide by those contracts and some of the activity that he's restricting in Ukraine may be more permissible under future contracts than it was a year or two ago when some of these stories are saying that he restricted access. So SpaceX is a privately held company and Elon Musk is supposedly the richest man in the world. Has there ever been anything like this in the history of the Pentagon? I mean, Howard Hughes, of course, was an eccentric character, but this seems to be a whole new ballgame. That may be right. I do think, though, that SpaceX is, is surviving in part on a handful of U.S. government contracts. And if there's a feeling that Elon is taking actions that are adverse to U.S. national security, then it's going to be harder for him to be seen as a trusted provider. And it may be that the Pentagon and NASA and others would want to invest in some of his competitors in that case. So I do think he's going to be circumscribed uh, to some degree going forward. He probably won't want to be seen as actively working against U.S. interests. Um, obviously, SpaceX has been providing some incredibly important information to Ukraine over the last few years. And I think it's going to be harder and harder for Elon to argue going forward that he shouldn't be involved in any geopolitical issues because the kind of technology he has is inherently important geopolitically. And so he's he's going to have to take a stand in the years ahead. But specifically what Isaacson's new book reveals, and Musk has not refuted uh, the main facts, that Musk foiled an attack on the Russia Black Sea fleet last year by refusing to let Ukraine use his satellite network to guide its naval drones. And, of course, the Ukrainians are furious because Musk said that he, he you know, didn't want to start World War Three. And apparently, at the time, he spoke with the Russian ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Antonov, 
who told uh, Musk that an attack on Crimea would lead to a nuclear response, which, of course, is something that the Russians have been using as propaganda all along, threatening nuclear retaliation. So even Musk's own former business partners uh, in PayPal have said that Musk has bought Putin's line, hook, line, and sinker. And we don't know the extent to which he, he converses on a regular basis with Putin. So if Musk is in the, in the position to be able to have real-time intelligence about a military operation that Ukraine's about to launch and able to stop that and scuttle that, is, doesn't he have the ability then to give real-time intelligence to Putin? I'm not sure that he does. I, I, technically, he might have the ability to do that. But my sense is really the issue here is that uh, Starlink has specific capabilities to turn on and off Ukraine's access uh, from a uh, geographically limited area. And so I think this is less about the information that Elon has. It, it, we have no indication that he has provided that information to to the Russians directly in advance of an attack. Um, and the other point to make here is we don't know whether this restriction that he put in place happened before or after he signed contracts with the Pentagon. I think the insinuation is that it may have happened before. Um, and it is possible that the contracts that he's entering into with the Defense Department would require him to provide some of this access that heretofore he may have limited. So bottom line being, yes, this is, I think, potentially quite problematic, but it is possible that some of the agreements that he's entered into with the U.S. government would preclude him from doing this in the future. Well, apparently, though, this geofencing that he has control over, on that particular occasion, the, the naval drones were launched, and he knew about it, and I don't know how, a, a top-secret operation to sink the, a lot of the Russian fleet in, in, in uh, literally in the harbors, um, and they were firing, these uh, Russian warships were firing caliber cruise missiles at Ukraine and killing civilians and blowing up infrastructure and apartment buildings, etc. And that's what's incensed the Ukrainians. They're saying, you know, this guy saying he's a big humanitarian and doesn't want to start World War Three, but at the same time he doesn't seem to care about missiles raining down on Ukraine, killing women and children. So the fact of the matter it seems, Zach, that he actually knew about this operation. How else? Why? What prompted him to to cut off? the uh, signals in that particular area, which then rendered these naval drones impotent. I, I think you're right. I, I think he, he did clearly know uh, that Ukraine was trying to access uh, the satellites and that they had been geofenced in a way that would preclude this sort of attack. You know, I, what you've heard Musk say in the past is that he, he wants to enable sort of defensive actions rather than offensive ones. But as you're well aware, I, I think it's a pretty easy argument to make if you're the Ukrainians that they are defending their territory. So there shouldn't be geofencing that just limits them to the territory that Ukraine currently holds, um, because, of course, they're defending against 
attacks that are happening in in territory that Ukraine used to hold. And so therefore, attacking areas like Crimea is, in fact, attacking their own territory and, and shouldn't be geofenced in any way. Um, you could even make an argument that Ukraine should be free to respond to Russian attacks by attacking bases on Russian soil. I think what's hard here is that Musk, in a number of areas, has tried to make this argument that, you know, he's not beholden to any country, right? Uh, he's got a huge uh, Tesla presence in China. He operates SpaceX globally. He's been changing the way that Twitter or now X runs to try and limit the U.S. government's ability to um, to alter what appears there. And in each of these domains, Musk's view appears to be that he he shouldn't be constrained by what is in the U.S. government or the United States' interest generally. I think that's what's really problematic here, is that he's in control of so much power um, and, and is really the single person able to make a lot of these decisions, which in many ways seem to be national level decisions at this point. Well, this situation, uh, Zach, is reminiscent of of some of the Ian Fleming's James Bond novels where you have some powerful industrialist wanting to take over the world. And in the case of Elon Musk, it's pretty extraordinary to have somebody that's that's mercurial that could be stoned on ketamine uh, (laughs) that we know he's a a troll because he – he does all kinds of out- makes all kinds of outrageous statements on Twitter now X. That's the part of it that I don't understand. It's the idea that I hate to be in Ukraine and had to be an Ukrainian official, being at the mercy of this man. Well, I think this is what's so hard is that without the technology that Elon Musk has advanced. Um, Ukraine would be in a much more difficult position, right? Uh, the the Starlink satellite system has been absolutely crucial to the communications needs and even to some of the targeting capabilities that Ukraine has today. Uh, Obviously, the U.S. military is providing some assistance, but the kind of constant communication that they need on the battlefield is, is something that the U.S. military isn't providing itself. And therefore, we're in this strange predicament where the technologies that Musk has helped advance are incredibly important from a military standpoint, uh, but but the restrictions he's putting on them are just have to be so frustrating to the Ukrainians on the ground. And I, I think this is something that the Defense Department will continue to push on and try and force Musk and SpaceX to allow broader use of their technologies, especially if they're under contract. But it's it's in the long line of U.S. technology companies that have seen themselves as global players rather than national ones, you know, th- this is not hugely surprising to me that that Musk is is following along in their footsteps. Well, apparently there are 42,000 Starlink terminals in Ukraine. And as you pointed out, Zach, the Ukrainian military, right down to the platoon level, need this satellite internet connection. I think you've seen pictures of the of the soldiers in bunkers with iPads directing military operations. So it's all the way down to the to the platoon level that they depend upon Starlink. Um, and the reason that they have these Starlink terminals is that early in the war the Russians destroyed what internet 
infrastructure Ukraine had, right? Yes. And it does seem like very efficient technology because it, they, these are small, a kind of rectangular uh, satellite dishes that can be deployed all across the country and the Russians don't have the ability to knock all of them out, right? So that's the advantage that Starlink provides them. And and it is a big advantage, right? It, it This is something that has surprised a lot of people in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Many of us thought that Russia would have a tremendous advantage because it would be able to take down Ukraine's networks using electronic warfare and cyber attacks and just direct attacks on infrastructure. And in fact, you know, we've been able to watch in almost real time as Ukraine has uh, continued to operate and operated very effectively at the front lines, despite all of those Russian efforts. So this is, I think, part of what many of us find very refreshing about the situation. SpaceX's technology has been a, of real value to Ukraine. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it would be much better if that technology could be fully utilized by Ukraine to liberate the territories that aren't yet back under their control. So what's the answer here? Is the, is the Pentagon going to assert itself? Because Musk has complained that he was actually financing Starlink in Ukraine, and now the Pentagon apparently has stepped up. So is there a problem on the Pentagon side, as well as having this fundamental problem of this mercurial billionaire having so much power over the fate of a, of a country at war that's been attacked by its neighbor? I think ultimately Musk is going to have a choice, which is either he can be a reliable provider of this technology under contracts to the Defense Department and other parts of the U.S. government, and that would probably ultimately mean providing Ukraine with access that's less geofenced than it is today. Um, or I think the U.S. government is going to look for alternatives, either systems that are uh, launched by other firms or that are controlled by the U.S. government ultimately. And so I think this is a choice for Musk about whether he wants to be a reliable provider here uh, or whether he wants to have the U.S. government help support a competitor. And it's not clear to me which direction he's likely to go. Um, he does have a lead. SpaceX has a lead today, but that lead is not insurmountable, especially if the U.S. government were to put uh, its thumb on the scales and really help support another contractor who it thinks is more dependable uh, geopolitically. But just in closing, the fact that he in touch with the, the Russian ambassador and apparently has said that he's had phone conversations with Putin we don't know how many, and we don't know by which means he communicates with him. But we do know that Musk was very annoyed that his peace proposal, which was ludicrous, it was entirely written by the Kremlin and rejected soundly by Ukraine. Apparently that annoyed him, and he's not happy with Ukraine. And according to his, to his former business partner at uh, PayPal, he's bought... Putin's line, hook, line, and sinker. So is there anything that the U.S. government can do about that? He's a private citizen. I guess he's entitled to be gullible. I think that's right. There, there are not a lot of restrictions that the U.S. can place on private citizens to have discussions with people in foreign countries. So I, I think the U.S. government is going to have to live with that um, 
with those actions. And, you know, this is true not just of Musk, but of business people in the U.S. who go to China and meet with Xi Jinping or or talk sometimes with with other very problematic leaders. Um, so I, I think this is a frustration that U.S. government officials will have with Musk in particular, but it's it's not only Musk that does these sorts of concerning uh, engagements with foreign governments. Well, Zach Cooper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Great being on. We're going to take a restation break, and we're back on this 50th anniversary of the coup against Chile's President Salvador Allende, which led to the torture, murder, and disappearance of over 40,000 Chileans speaking with Ariel Dorfman, the Chilean-American author. Parate frente a mí, que te habías enamorado hace unos años sin decirme nada. Entonces la emoción confirma el sentimiento. Y qué mala suerte en el amor, ni buena suerte en el juego. Y si al final lo que hay que vivir, lo que hay que soñar, hay que vivirlo, te vuelvo a dar la gracia. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ariel Dorfman, a Chilean-American author born in Argentina, whose award-winning books in many genres have been published in more than 50 languages, and his plays performed in more than 100 countries. Among his works are the plays Death and the Maiden and Purgatorio, the novels Widows and Confidence, and the memoirs Heading South, Looking North, and Feeding on Dreams. A prominent human rights activist, he worked as a press and cultural advisor to Salvador Allende's chief of staff in the final months before the 1973 military coup, and later spent many years in exile. He is an emeritus professor of literature at Duke University, and his latest book just out is The Suicide Museum, a novel, and he has an article in the New York Times, I Watched a Democracy Die, I Don't Want to Do It Again, and another at the New York Review of Books, Defending Allende. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ariel Dolfman. Thank you. I'm very glad to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us on this 50th anniversary of the September 11th, 1973 death of Allende and the bombing of the Laminata, the palace. You were, as, as we just mentioned in the bio, you worked as a press and cultural advisor to Allende's uh, chief of staff, fielding many calls, including one from Pinochet himself. But let's just touch on your article in the New York Times, because Trump made a frightening speech on Friday in South Dakota, which was full-on fascist. And in your New York Times article, I watched A Democracy Die, I Don't Want to Do It Again. There's no question that there's a similarity here. To this day, one-third of Chileans still support Pinochet and, in effect, fascism. And it's about the same here in the United States, is it not, if Trump is America's Pinochet? Well, you know, we, we are living a time when authoritarian tendencies and Pinochet avatars seem to be sprouting out everywhere. 
And, uh, of course, I'm not saying it started 50 years ago, but 50 years ago there was a chance for creating uh, a democratic socialism, meaning some somebody, uh, Salvador Allende, and the movement of, of uh, people who surrounded him, I was one of them, believed that it was possible to reach a just society, an equitable society, a liberated society, a sovereign society, without spreading, uh, without, you know, uh, spilling any blood. And this was the first revolution in history that was, was democratic in the sense that it, it was not destined with violence. It wasn't tainted with violence. And uh, it ended, of course, with terrible violence, uh, partly because of the United States, but partly because of our own mistakes. And uh, it is terrible to see that 50 years later, after we have defeated Pinochet, because we managed to get our democracy back, and we, we certainly feel that it is, is a, an enormously wonderful thing to have, because, you know, it's, it's pretty wonderful to be able to give your opinions and not be jailed or, or executed or tortured for them. Uh, at this very moment, you have people like Trump, but of course, it's not just Trump, it's Bolsonaro in, in, in Brazil, and it's Millet in, in Argentina, and Orban in Hungary, and we can go on and on and on, right? So this tendency towards uh, anti-democratic, illiberal rulers who uh, appeal to the worst instincts of people around them is very reminiscent of General Pinochet and his 17 years of misrule of Chile. And it, it it, it's very good for Americans, but not only Americans, but everywhere, everybody everywhere, to remember the sufferings that were imposed on the Chilean people when democracy was uh, snuffed out, because that is the sort of thing which is awaiting you if you do not wake up and stop this right now. So the, the aftermath of that very day, you yourself were in hiding in a safe house. Your friends are being rounded up and disappeared and murdered and tortured. To this day, at least 40,000 Chileans were murdered, disappeared, and tortured, and the remains still have not been found from the death caravans, etc. So just as, as a survivor of the day after, if you will, the day after fascism comes, it's worth telling the American people what it's like, because it may be in store for us. It's hard for us to understand what we're facing, but... Uh, the writing is on the wall, I'm afraid, here in the United States. And well, let me first talk about the writing that is on my wall, which is the fact that I've just published a novel in which I speak about how it me what it meant to survive. Because I should have been at La Moneda that day because I was a press and cultural advisor to Allende's chief of staff. And if I, I survived, it was because, uh, as, as the novel tells in, in greater detail, I changed shifts with a friend who, instead of me, slept at the Moneda that night, the night of, of September 10th, and woke up on September 11th to the coup, and he was executed. Oh, he was first, he was captured, he was tortured, he was executed, and he's disappeared. In other words, there was no grave for him for years and years and years. They couldn't find even his remains. And this, of course, is very symbolic of the whole uh, story of Chile, which is that of the disappearance of a dream and the disappearance of, uh, of, of a country which cared for its own in brotherhood, sisterhood, rather than one which was dominated by the greed of neoliberalism, which, which came afterwards. So uh, for me, the survivor, uh, to, to be a survivor was also, uh, there were sort of two things that were happening there. One was dread and, and, and the sense of fear that it could happen to you, that, that what was happening to your best friends could happen to you, that they could torture you, that they could torture your children in front of you. 
they could take your wife and put rats up her vagina. I mean, the, I'm not talking about things. This is, these are not things that I'm making up. Uh, these are things that happened. You felt that this could happen. And for myself, as I, as I explained in the novel, for years and years, I felt that I was a survivor, that I, 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 had, I was living because somebody else had died in my place. And I kept on wondering, you know, why is it that he died and I was alive? I mean, what, what allows you to do that? So you get this enormous sense of guilt. At the same time, along with that, you have this sense of, well, we want to survive in order to resist. It's not just surviving for the sake of surviving. It's surviving in order to remember. It's surviving in order to, to struggle. It's surviving in order, in my case, it was to go outside the country and drum up solidarity if, if it was possible and then go back to Chile, as I did. And then, of course, I was beaten up, and then I was arrested, and I was deported. So, I mean, and my thing was just very, very, very small. I, I, I resent the fact that I did this with my small son, who's traumatized by it. But it's very you know, insignificant compared to what happened to so many. But that story is a story both of sadness and loss, but also a story of struggle and defiance because we did manage to finally defeat the, the dictator and he managed to defeat us in many other ways as well, because he, he twisted our society in such ways that it was unrecognizable. As I explained in the novel, you know, I went back to Chile, but going back to Chile, I found that the country had changed so much or I had changed so much that it was impossible to stay there. I go back of course with my family over and over again, but we, we, we didn't feel that we wanted to live there anymore. Well, but collectively, we here in the United States have blood on our hands because of uh, our government at the time, led by Richard M. Nixon, whose uh, national security advisor was Henry Kissinger, and prior to September the 11th, 1973, and the death of Allende, the CIA financed a terrorist group to kill General René Schneider, the commander-in-chief of the army, and who was committed to the rule of law, uh, so that seemed like a precursor to what subsequently happened. So you can't deny the hand of the Nixon White House. And in fact, in in documents obtained uh, by the National Security Archive, President Nixon says, quote, if there is any way to unseat Allende, better do it now. Full-time job, best men we have. So, Correct. Yeah, we had. And then, then they hands, said, right? when that didn't work, they said, "Make the economy scream," and they they blockaded us terribly and and uh, and supposedly invisibly, you know. So the United States was very very uh, very complicit in this, and the reason why they did this was, first of all, they're defending the interest of copper and the interest of the monopolies that they they controlled, that big corporations controlled, but it's also because the example of Allende was enormously dangerous. Dangerous because uh, if the rest of Latin America and other countries in the world imitated Allende and said, yes, we can create a more just society, we can create a more equitable society, not by violence, but by the will of the people in the ballot box, if we can do this democratically, then that would spread like wildfire. So they had to stop Allende, and they did. Of course, I, I, let me insist, it's not only that, that, that the United States did this, because we ourselves were unable to create the conditions that allowed us to overcome this terrible intervention on the part of the United States. 
Let's talk about the role of Fidel Castro. You, you mentioned that he gave Allende an AK-47, but my understanding is that he was he was down in Chile holding court there for some time. And how much did that make the uh, American uh, national security establishment around Nixon paranoid, do you think? No, I don't think they cared at all whether Fidel Castro went, because the fact is I think that they probably... If they could have paid him, they would have paid him to stay more time because he was supposed to come for two days and he stayed for three weeks. And his his stay was not helpful at all because uh, there was inside the Allende coalition a faction that did not very much believe in that Chilean road to socialism. And it was partly the divisions inside our own coalition which created the trouble for us. So uh, Fidel outstayed his welcome. And uh, and I, I I think the CIA was probably quite happy to see him stay there because the, the more he stayed, the more they felt there was a rift inside the the the, the forces for uh, for liberation. And I well, by the way about the AK forty seven. Here's the thing about the AK forty seven. In the novel, I mention that I saw that AK forty seven in Allende's house. Whether that is true or not, well. There are lots of things that I make up in the novel. That may be one of them. That may not be. I'm not going to reveal what was true and what was not. But uh, the 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 junta Pinochet and company later said that Allende had committed suicide with the AK-47. But the AK-47 wasn't at La Moneda. So it's one of the things that I glaring mistakes that I show in the in in the novel, which is that you know it turns out that Allende couldn't have killed himself with that with that uh, AK-47 because it wasn't there. Now, he may have killed himself with something else or somebody may have killed him with something else. There are two different interpretations, several interpretations, in fact, of what happened that day. Uh, And the novel is in great measure an an attempt to uh, investigate the enigma of the death of Allende because it's not only the death of Allende, it's the death of Chile and it's the death of a certain dream of Chile and it's the death of of so many hopes and so many lives, right? So by going into that, what I'm doing is I'm trying to imagine what it was like in La Moneda the day that I never got there. And I never got there because of different, because I changed, I changed shifts with my friend, but also because I was on a list and I should have been called that morning of, of September 11th. But the person who was in charge of the list uh, erased my name. And when I met him many years later in exile, he told me, I, I took your name off because somebody had to tell the story, and that's why I'm here speaking to you because I'm telling the story. Oh my God, that is that's quite heart wrenching. So let's just in the last few minutes though talk talk a little about your book, The Suicide Museum, a novel just out. The Dutch billionaire character, who's real, right? Um, I, I, I don't answer about everybody's real and everybody's false in this book. You <laughs> okay, can Google well, him, maybe. But remember, if, if you Google his name, yeah. he lives under an alias, so you may not find him. Okay. But he, he made his money out of billions out of uh, making plastic bags, and then one day was about to eat a yellowfin tuna that he caught and found out that it had ingested plastic, and then he became a, a fierce environmentalist and c- concerned about global warming. But he also was obsessed about how and what happened uh, in terms of the death of Allende. And the novel is full of an extraordinary, eclectic range of characters, including Jackson Brown, who I happened to meet the other day, and he told me what a huge fan of this program is. So 
he had, well, I'm glad because Jackson, I, I, I can confirm that Jackson, everything I say about Jackson in the novel, which are several pages, is absolutely true. You see, there I go. I'm, yeah. I'm telling you the truth about that at least. Right. Jackson came, he visited us, we went to the, to, to the coast, we did lots of things together, we were followed by the police, uh, lots of different things happened. So, yes, Jackson is in the novel, and he was, he was good enough. I asked him before I, I put him in there, I said, Jackson, do you mind if I put you in my novel? Because, look, I may make up a, a lot of things, and people may think this is not true. He said, no, go ahead, Ariel, I loved it when I was with you and Angelica and the kids in Chile. By all means, use me as well as you, as you want, right? as if I was one of his songs, right? So, yes. <laughs> so, is there a way, though, that we can prevent what happened in Chile here in the United States? Because there's no point in wringing our hands. Uh, there has to be a massive mobilization to stop Trump. And there seems to be a lot of discontent about Biden not being up for the job, etc. But it seems to me we don't have that luxury anymore. You know, out here in Hollywood, of course, they they treat presidential politics like casting a movie. They're all looking for somebody else. But at what point do American Democrats, both in terms of small D and large D, get behind a necessary movement to stop American fascism? Well, you know, I mean, once again, I hate to quote the same novel, but I say Allende is relevant today because he says the the struggle is on and his example is there and he says we do not need anything but more democracy more democracy and if there is a solution it will be in the mobilization of millions and millions of ordinary men and women now if those men and women are not willing to really struggle for their rights then we are going to lose them and that has happened over and over again in history just as over and over again in history, when ordinary people, just people, you know, who, who, who just want to live a, a good life with their families and their neighbors and their country and the communities, if those people do not mobilize, then we, were, we are going to have uh, all sorts of Pinochets sprouting up everywhere, right? And the result will be a disaster, especially because now the question is not only that of one country like Chile or democracy in Chile, it is because, as the billionaire uh, that, that is in my novel says, now the question is that of all of humanity. So uh, the reason why I, I call it the suicide museum is because he wants to create a suicide museum to wake people up. Now, I don't think you can wake them up with a suicide museum. In fact, I myself, in, in the novel, I think it's sort of crazy. And my wife thinks he's totally insane. But what he's trying to say, really, and, and in that I agree with him, is we have to wake people up. People have to awaken to the fact that this is a dire situation, and it will not easily be resolved. It can only be resolved by everybody, everybody who cares, getting engaged. It's not going to go away. Trump is not going to go away by himself. And fascism does not go away by itself. And repression does not go away by itself. It takes a great deal of, of work and sacrifice. And if people don't care, then they're going to get what they don't want. They don't even know what's in, in there. So that's why I think the, the Chilean case is so important, because, because here was a democratic regime, a democratic uh, uh, government. This was elected by the people. It wasn't imposed on the force of arms. It wasn't we had come out of the hills or we had come uh, out of the, the shanty towns or out of the army. No, 
this was this was decided by the people with their vote against all the odds, against all the disinformation, against all the pressure from the rich. It was decided by the people. And that's why it was such a, a potent example. And that's an example that I think we have to we have to trust and believe in. And uh, I think it again is relevant today when when what humanity as such faces the possibility that if we do not do something, we are headed for extinction. We're headed for a real apocalypse. And I think that is totally true. So he's relevant today. He's speaking to us about compassion, about love, about caring, about struggle. And those are examples that we need if we are to prevail. Well, Leonard Dolphin, I thank you so much for joining us here today on the 50th anniversary. Thank you anniversary. so much for having me again. And again, I've been speaking with Ariel Dolphin, a Chilean-American author born in Argentina, whose award-winning books in many genres have been published in more than 50 languages, and his plays performed in more than 100 countries. Among his works are the plays Death and the Maiden and Purgatorio, the novels Widows and Confidence, and the memoirs Heading South, Looking North, and Feeding on Dreams. A prominent human rights activist, he worked as a press and cultural advisor to Salvador Allende's chief of staff in the final months before the 1973 military coup and later spent many years in exile. He is an emeritus professor of literature at Duke University and his latest book just out is The Suicide Museum, a novel, and he has an article in the New York Times, I Watched a Democracy Die, I Don't Want to Do It Again, and another at the New York Review of Books, Defending Allende. And he joined us on the 50th anniversary of the death of Salvador Allende on September the 11th, 1973. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back on this 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks on Wall Street, the Pentagon, and the attempt to destroy the U.S. Capitol, speaking about the Senate Homeland Security Committee's efforts to get an unredacted report on Saudi Arabia's role in the attack. Te recuerdo, Amanda, la calle mojada, corriendo a la fábrica donde trabajaba Manuel. La sonrisa ancha, la lluvia en el pelo, no importaba nada, ibas a encontrarte con él, con él, con él. Con él, con él, son cinco minutos, la vida es eterna en cinco minutos. Suena la sirena, de vuelta al trabajo, y tú caminando, lo iluminas todo, los cinco minutos. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Philip Sheenan, who's a best-selling author of The Commission, The Uncensored History of the 9-11 Investigation, and a former reporter for The New York Times for more than 20 years. As a Washington correspondent for The New York Times, he covered the Pentagon, the Justice Department, and the State Department. And as a foreign correspondent, he reported from more than 60 countries and several war zones. And his latest book is A Cruel and Shocking Act, The Secret History of the Kennedy Assassination. Welcome to Background Briefing, Philip Sheenan. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Phil. And today, of course, is the 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And uh, members of the Senate Homeland Security Committee, chaired by Senator Richard Blumenthal, are now asking the Justice Department and the FBI 
to release an unredacted copy of an 11-page document summarizing Operation Encore, which details ties between the 9-11 hijackers and, and Saudi Arabia and Saudi nationals that the U.S. government so far has not released, and, or what they have released so far uh, in terms of Operation Encore have been heavily redacted. So the the story is incomplete, right? We're, we're haunted by the inability to get a full disclosure about Saudi Arabia's role. And, of course, I think we've got two presidential candidates now uh, running, uh, Ramaswamy and RFK Jr., that have entertained some of the 9-11 conspiracy theories. So the conspiracy theories are not dying, and the transparency has not been forthcoming. Well, certainly there hasn't been full transparency on the question of Saudi Arabia. And, you know, that's something my book focused on, which is that there, there appears to have been at least low-level ties between Saudi government officials and some of the 9-11 hijackers. And the question that's never been resolved is, did others in the Saudi government know, people at much higher levels, about the, uh, the hijacking plot? And as you know, much of this involves the, the Saudi consulate in Los Angeles, where there does appear to have been a, a, a fairly a senior diplomat who knew the hijackers and dispatched somebody to help the hijackers while they lived in Southern California. And again, that whole story was something the the 9-11 Commission kind of ducked in many ways because of the sensitivity of investigating anything about the American relationship with Saudi Arabia, which is uh, you know, such a strategically important country to the, to the United States. And those meetings between the Saudi consulate official in, in Los Angeles as well as, I believe, people from the local mosque, those two characters then went down to San Diego, and they apparently, the CIA knew about them, and the CIA's uh, agent at the time, Alfreda Bukowski, who later married Mike Scheuer, she never passed the information that the CIA had about them to the FBI. Does that gel with your memory? Well, it's a very complicated story, and I'm not sure I remember all the details, but it was very clear at the end of the day that there was some sort of Saudi network operating in Southern California that was directed to some extent by a Saudi uh, uh, diplomat in the Los Angeles consulate that was keeping watch on Saudi uh, Saudi nationals that were living in Southern California, spying on them, keeping track of what they were doing, making sure they didn't pose any threat to Saudi Arabia. And it's clear that the Saudi diplomat in the consulate, a fellow by the name of Thumeri, um, is going out of his way to dispatch members of this network to help and to keep an eye on two of these young Saudi men who would later become hijackers on 9-11. And I think it's fair to say that the FBI and the CIA had some inkling of, of this at the time, before 9-11, and, and failed to act on it. And there was no desire after 9-11 to really get to the bottom of it, uh, because, of course, to get to the bottom of it might reveal information to suggest that the FBI and the CIA had intelligence that might, allow, that might have allowed them to, uh, to foil the 9-11 plot. So what then is the reason for this redaction and and uh, this resistance. I mean, just a few days ago in India at the G20 summit, President Biden did more than a fist bump 
with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi dictator. He you know, gave him a hearty handshake, and this is after having vowed to turn him into a pariah because of the murder and dismemberment of a Washington Post reporter who was considered a dissident, a Saudi dissident. So at the end of the day, it's just Saudis' oil, money, power, influence. Why do we capitulate to them, do you think? For all those reasons, Saudi, you know, (laughs) oil, money, um, you know, it's remarkable to me now that the Saudis apparently control American golfing, you know. Uh, Their influence is widespread. The Biden administration has had to back off on its full-throated condemnation of of the uh, Saudi leader. Um, You know, the Saudis wield real power in the United States. And to focus on the question of whether or not the Saudi government had any more direct involvement in the 9-11 plot uh, really might uh, compromise the alliance between the United States and, and Saudi Arabia. And that's something that a, a series of American presidents have been unwilling to do. So in terms of the presidential campaign and just turning to Ramaswamy, what's all that about, do you think? What was he trying to hint at here when he suggested that he had some questions about what happened on 9-11, particularly, this is just to quote what he said, I think it is legitimate to say how many police, how many federal agents were on the planes that hit the Twin Towers. Maybe the answer is zero. It probably is zero for all I know, right? I have no reason to think there was anything other than zero. But if we're going to do a comprehensive assessment of what happened on 9-11, we have a 9-11 commission absolutely that the public knows the answer to. Now, you wrote the sort of definitive book on the 9-11 commission report, right? The commission, the uncensored history of the 9-11 investigation. What is Ramaswamy talking about? You know, I really don't know. I'm confounded by many things that Mr. Brahmaswamy says. I'm not sure he really thought through what he was saying. I think he just likes to throw up conspiracy theories on all sorts of fronts. Um, uh, you know, the only the, the conspiracy that I think is most uh, that's most worthy of our attention or a conspiracy theory that's most worthy of our attention is whether or not there was additional so, uh, uh, Saudi Arabian knowledge of the hijacking plot and whether or not there was assistance given to any of the hijackers. I think the rest of what Mr. Ramaswawi is offering as conspiracy theories have no basis in fact. So do you th- expect then anything from this Homeland Security Committee headed by Blumenthal? Because the co-chair is Ron Johnson, who is a dimwit from Wisconsin, but they both seem to be on board this request to release an unredacted report, which I think is a relatively recent one on I Operation think, I Encore. Think there's, there's always been, I think there's always been bipartisan interest on Capitol Hill to get to the bottom of, of these questions about Saudi Arabia. And the fact that Blumenthal and Ron Johnson can, can agree on anything is pretty remarkable. Uh, President Biden two years ago uh, vowed in an executive order that he was going to declassify the remaining files about this, uh, the the documents about uh, possible links between Saudi Arabia and the 9-11 plot. And I think it's fair to say that the the Biden administration has not lived up to those commitments from from two years ago. Uh, And there does appear to be um, an FBI report about this Operation Encore 
that does list what is known about possible ties between Saudi Arabia and the 9-11 plot. And the Biden administration has been unwilling to release that full document. They released a, a, a heavily redacted version of it, and Blumenthal and Johnson are now requesting the full thing. Now, if, if President Biden really wants to live up to the commitment he made two years ago, we should be able to see all that. But again, the Biden administration seems to be very sensitive these days to the interests of Saudi Arabia. So I, I fear we may never see it. So the other conspiracy theory that won't go away, that's lived on even longer than the 9-11 conspiracies, of course, are the many, many theories about the assassination of President Kennedy. And lo and behold, we're now, there's a new wrinkle in it. And of course, Phil, your latest book is A Cruel and Shocking Act, The Secret History of the Kennedy Assassination. Now, Secret Service agent Paul Landis, who was actually in the limousine with President Kennedy when he was assassinated, uh, picked up a bullet. Now, it's often referred to as the magic bullet theory. Now, in the Warren Commission report, they did talk about a bullet being found on a gurney, but this bullet was actually found in the limousine itself, and as they were moving Kennedy's body to put him into the uh, emergency room. That's when the agent, Paul Landis, saw the, bu- saw the bullet, put it in his pocket. So it doesn't seem like a big deal, but apparently there's a new book coming out and uh, that Paul Landis has been interviewed uh, by the New York Times in this upcoming book. Well, you know, I, I, I think I'm I'm justified in my skepticism about what this Secret Service agent is reporting is now saying 60 years after the fact that he found one of the bullets that killed President, he found a bullet used in, fired by um, uh, apparently by Oswald's rifle. He found that bullet in the presidential limousine after the assassination and placed it on the gurney were to believe that he never told that, that a Secret Service agent had found the bullet in the limousine and placed it on the gurney, were to believe for Mr. Landis that he told no one, none of his colleagues, none of his supervisors, none of his friends, none of his family. He never told them that story for all these 60 years. So I'm skeptical that there's, that, that he's, he's, maybe this is what he believes he remembers, uh, but at the time of the assassination, he, issued, he he apparently submitted two written reports about what he knew and made no mention of this bullet. So, you know, with the Kennedy assassination, much like 9-11, every couple of years you'll get somebody who comes forward claiming to have uh, some uh, shocking new piece of evidence or sh- some shocking memory about what really went on that changes the whole story. I'm, I'm just not sure I believe Mr. Landis um, is, is, is offering us the facts. And it's interesting that uh, the, the Secret Service agent, one of his colleagues at the time, Clint Hill, uh, the Secret Service agent who very famously saves Jacqueline Kennedy in the motorcade in Dallas on, on November 22nd, 1963, he's come forward to say that, that Landis really doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, if, if Landis' story is true, that he indeed picked up this bullet and put it on the on the gurney in Parkland Hospital, that doesn't necessarily undermine the idea of the magic bullet, that there was one bullet that passed through the the body of both President Kennedy and Governor Connolly. It just means we now know where that bullet came from. It came from the limousine 
in fact, I, I do recall when doing the research on the on the cruel and shocking act, the Kennedy assassination book, that there was a lot of confusion on the Warren Commission staff about how exactly that bullet had finished up on that gurney in Parkland Hospital. And maybe Mr. Landis now offers an explanation for how that happened. But again, I just find it remarkable that a Secret Service agent in the president's motorcade on the day of the Kennedy assassination that it would take him 60 years to remember that he found that bullet in the limousine after after the president's death. So, and the fact that the bullet was sitting on the back seat, that indicates that it was pretty much spent, right, if it went through the body of Governor Connolly and then President Kennedy. Right. I say, I, I, I have a, I say the, the idea, the, the magic bullet theory is that one bullet first passes through President Kennedy and then passes into Governor Connolly, who's seated in front of President Kennedy in the presidential limousine. And the bullet reemerges at Parkland Hospital on this gurney, or at least it's found by hospital personnel on this gurney. And the Warren Commission staff sort of questioned, well, how did it get there? Did it fall out of uh, Kennedy's body? Did it fall out of Connolly's body? Uh, they assumed in the end that it had fallen out of Connolly's body, or at least it had passed through Connolly's body. Um, uh, and maybe Landis is offering an explanation for how that bullet got from the limousine to the gurney, that, that Landis had actually walked it into Parkland Hospital. But again, Landis has had 60 years to tell this story. At the time of the assassination, in written reports he submitted to his own supervisors, he made absolutely no mention of it. And doesn't it occur to you that if a Secret Service agent found that bullet, he would tell everybody, certainly everybody within the Secret Service about that, and that we would have had a record of it 60 years ago. Right. Well, Phil Sheenan, I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.
away. 